0: This noise might sound, to some of you at least, like one of those old FM radios. You know, when you can't find the frequency of your favourite radio station to listen to your favourite science show. What you're actually listening to is one of the most important pieces of marine life. This is the sound of a healthy coral reef. Each time an animal drags itself or its shell over the coral or a fish takes a bite of its food it all adds up to the underwater soundscape. Altogether you can hear hundreds of thousands of creatures interrupted by the occasional cry from a fish, whale or dolphin. But this wall of underwater sound is becoming less common. Coral reefs are increasingly threatened by overfishing, pollution, and of course, climate change. A coral reef soundscape is an indicator of its health. Unhealthy reefs are much quieter, silent even. Monitoring the health of coral reefs and tracking their rapid unfortunate decline is becoming ever more important as these ecosystems degrade but there are plenty of scientists also trying their best to buck that depressing trend. They want to restore corals and find ways to encourage them to resist some of the devastating effects of climate change. Hello and welcome to Babbage from The Economist, our weekly podcast on science and technology. I'm Alok Chaudhary, The Economist, science correspondent. Today we'll be diving deep into the ocean to take a tour of some intriguing new ideas hoping to revive and perhaps even save the world's coral reefs. We'll learn why corals are so important to the marine and human environment. And we'll explore some of the innovations that could help these incredibly important ecosystems survive in an increasingly warming world.
1: Coral reefs can be thought of as the rainforests of the ocean.
0: Gilad Amit is a science correspondent at The Economist.
1: They're these vast, colourful, noisy ecosystems. They provide a haven for a third of all multicellular life in the ocean. But just like rainforests, they're extremely vulnerable to climate change. Um, The statistics are really staggering. Coral reefs have declined by 30% in 50 years. And deadly bleaching events are happening much more frequently now than before. The, The fear is that coral reefs won't survive the century
0: yeah this is a regular in the news headlines isn't it that coral reefs are dying they're reducing everywhere biodiversity is disappearing so let's take a step back people will have heard of coral reefs they'll have seen the pictures they're absolutely beautiful things what is a healthy coral reef community i mean just describe it for me
1: natural corals come in two varieties there are the hard corals which sort of form these fingers almost rising up from the seabed and there are the softer corals which kind of sway polyp-like in the currents and the coral reef is to a large extent a community of animals of different types different colors in which other diversity thrives on a basic level it's a community of corals and i In my naivete, I used to think that these were elaborate rock formations, or perhaps giving them credit, plants. But it turns out they're animals. They're extremely complex animals that live in a symbiosis with a host of other organisms inside their bodies. And the most important for the purposes of this story are microscopic algae, which provide them with food and give them their colour. And then these corals combine to form a colony, they breed, they spawn, and they can spread out over suitable surfaces in the ocean which are also in many places declining.
0: So corals are very deep down in the ocean and uh, most of them are quite far away from where people are listening to this podcast. So give people a sense of why they're so important for the ecosystems and wh- why people should care about their existence beyond the fact that they're beautiful and you know perhaps some people want to go and see them.
1: So over a billion people live close enough to a reef to be affected by their decline. And As you imply, doesn't just mean a lack of opportunities to go scuba diving on weekends. Reefs provide coastal cities, sometimes very large coastal cities like Miami, with crucial protection from tides. They attract other species which provide coastal communities with food. And they're central thanks to the tourism they provide to the economies of nations across the Pacific and the Caribbean and, and elsewhere. It's very difficult to put numbers on these things, but if you wanted to, the total economic value that coral reefs provide is thought to be around $10 trillion. So their loss has a massive impact, not just because we're losing biodiversity, but because it's affecting other species on the planet.
0: And okay, one of the things we hear about when it comes to coral reefs is that they're getting increasingly bleached. What does coral bleaching actually mean?
1: So bleaching basically occurs when the symbiotic algae within the coral turn on their host. These algae photosynthesize to survive, which means they turn carbon dioxide and water into energy and oxygen. But when temperatures rise, they start producing other compounds of oxygen that are toxic to the corals, and so the corals expel them from their bodies. And this leaves them without their primary source of energy, and it leaves them whitened, distinctively bleached, and it makes them very vulnerable to disease.
0: Okay, and how much is human activity causing this bleaching?
1: It's seen as the biggest threat facing corals. Human-made global warming is the biggest threat that's facing corals today. Water takes a very, very long time to cool down. And even if emissions were to stop today, the oceans would continue heating for decades. And apart from simply the, the thermal stress, the oceans are a huge carbon sink absorbing billions of tons of carbon dioxide a year. And this acidifies the ocean outside of the comfort zone of coral. So the extra heat, the acidity, not to mention pollution, whether it's microplastics or or anything else, this all threatens to push surviving coral reefs over the brink.
0: All right, so that's all the bad news. But your reporting is going to try and turn the corner on that, right? So tell us about what you found out about people trying to sort of reverse this epic decline.
1: Yeah, so this is quite an exciting time in coral research because the pessimism is starting to be levied by a little bit of optimism. And it's motivated by the discovery that a surprising number of corals turn out to be resistant to heat and resistant enough to survive the 1.5 degrees of global warming that are currently expected and possibly even substantially more than that. At the moment, though, the resistance is poorly understood, and it's unhelpfully distributed. So it's no use if a handful of corals survive while the surrounding reef dies out of exposure to heat because then those corals are doomed as well. Um, so if scientists can learn to harness the resistance and then spread it more widely and perhaps in, in more useful locations, coral reefs have a chance of making it to the next century and beyond.
0: Okay, well, that, that does sound positive. But promoting healthy corals to avoid bleaching and death, I mean, you know, that's not a brand new idea, right?
1: No, you're absolutely right. I mean, um, there have been studies on trying to grow corals in the lab for, for decades now. Most of them involve taking corals from a reef, growing them in the lab, and then trying to plant them back on the reef. And some of these have been successful to various extents, but fundamentally they suffer from a conceptual problem, which is if you are Placing more of these corals out on the reef and the temperatures continue to rise, all you're doing is sending them back out there into an environment that's hostile to them. So new and more innovative ways of protecting corals in order to plant them with resistance to this heat are starting to emerge.
0: Have those previous efforts ever been successful? Have they brought back corals in places where they've been decimated?
1: There are some real success stories, but they are on small scales. Acres of reef in the Caribbean, in Belize in particular, have been restored, which is a great success locally. But the Great Barrier Reef, which is an iconic reef off the coast of Australia, is the size of Italy. So by comparison, it's really just been a drop in the ocean.
0: Okay, so what are some of the new ways to build resilient corals and coral reefs?
1: So there are all sorts of approaches, which is even better news. There isn't just one idea taking root. But what's more important, everyone agrees, is just protecting what's already out there. And there's a conservation group in Florida that is building a living gene bank of coral species to protect them and then allow them to contribute to the next generation. And this idea of of storing and protecting what already exists is something I spoke about with Kerry O'Neill, who is the senior scientist of the coral conservation program at Florida Aquarium. She started by telling me about the threat that currently faces her corals.
2: Coral reefs are facing a lot of stressors, but really the most severe threat right now is human-caused climate change. You can imagine um, these animals rely on the ocean temperature to regulate their body functions. So when we have a hotter summer, you know, every summer, they're essentially running a fever all summer long which then leaves any animal that has too high of a body temperature, even by just a few degrees, is going to be more susceptible to things like disease and just breakdown of its normal functions.
1: So my understanding is that we've known about these negative impacts on reefs for for quite some time, and that we've been engaged in various attempts to mitigate it, to restore reefs. Could you maybe give me a sense of, you know, a a brief potted history of attempts that we've made to restore reefs so far.
2: Reef restoration has been going on for a few decades now. And it really starts usually with what's called the coral gardening concept. So the interesting thing is that corals are a colony of smaller individuals so you can actually break a coral in two or three or four and each one of those pieces grows into a new coral so scientists have been using this technique for a while now called asexual propagation where you just break the coral into pieces and grow new corals and those new corals can then be used to plant a, a reef area However, you end up with essentially clones of that parent. All those individuals you plant are the same genetic makeup of the parent. So they don't really have added resiliency. They're not evolving or adapting to any changes in their environment. And so there's limitations to that. So that's why we're starting to look at breeding corals and using sexual reproduction to create new generations of corals that hopefully have a new combination of genes and a new combination of traits that might be more resilient.
1: How big of of an impact would you say have these coral gardening approaches made so far?
2: So most of the coral gardening and and outplanting or restoration projects so far are just a tiny, tiny drop in the bucket in the area that we've lost in, in coral reefs. It is shockingly inefficient <laughs> to grow corals by fragmenting them by hand and then planting them all by hand out on the reef. It is just not the way that we are going to scale this up and be able to plant millions or billions of corals. You know, what we really need to do is restore certain areas that are then able to reproduce on their own and help seed nearby reefs.
1: And I guess the fact that some corals can be resilient and we can restore some reefs isn't a carte blanche to continue warming and continue doing what we want because the scientists will save the corals anyway.
2: Yeah, that's a fear of some scientists, is that we can't just make it sound like we can keep creating super corals that can adapt to anything, right? Every animal has its limits. You know, we're not going to breed humans that don't need to drink water or something. There's a limit <laughs> to that. Or we just end up living in a completely artificially built environment, you know, <laughs> which we could do for corals. That you know, the corals could just live in aquariums. But that's not the goal. The goal is that we want them to be living in a natural environment.
1: And within that context of humans need to change their behavior, uh, these discoveries of resistance, of different mechanisms of resistance, do they give cause for hope? Because they seem like reason for optimism.
2: Oh, this definitely gives cause for hope. I mean, I think the fact that we can now reliably breed many species of coral in the laboratory, and we're finding that there are genetic basis to some resilient traits, and we can actually make the next generation and test heritability of those traits. Like We're really on the doorstep of of something major in terms of being able to breed potentially resilient and resistant corals and breed a stronger generation of corals. So I, I think we're really just breaking very new ground here, but it's very exciting. You know, I think we can really make a very big impact in improving the situation for corals.
1: Kerry, thank you very much.
2: Thank you for having me. It's been a great discussion.
0: So Gilad, Kerry there talked about a range of possibilities for trying to encourage resistant corals to form. So everything from selective breeding to changing human behaviour. What else are people looking at to try and do this work?
1: So the three most promising scientific approaches revolve around what I've taken to calling the three Gs. And the first of those is genetics. It's clear that resistance to heat is a useful thing for corals to evolve, and they've done so in various places around the world. And it's possible that we could isolate the specific genes that cause this resistance. And if we could do that, that would make them easier to spot in the wild with the help of genetic tests on board boats, and it could allow them to be selectively bred so as to produce resistant offspring. Part of the problem with existing coral restoration techniques is that they rely on asexual reproduction. So what you're producing is effectively a colony of clones of a single organism. And with the help of controlled sexual reproduction, you could engineer these resistant traits into a whole new generation and ensure diversity on the reef. Now, an obvious extension of this idea of identifying the resistant genes would be to engineer corals by adding or removing the genes you need in order to confer resilience. And this is being done with the help of gene editing techniques like CRISPR-Cas9 and with some limited success. But all the researchers I spoke to, even the ones who are doing this work, stressed that in their view, this is for emergency use only.
0: I mean, gene editing is still at a very early stage in many, many areas, and it's good that it's being used here. But as you say, it's not ready for prime time quite yet in the real in the real world in this respect. But it's good that that's, that's a strategy. What's another one of your three Gs?
1: The second is geography. Now, while exposure to heat over the course of generations can produce genetic resilience, that's just evolution, it's also possible to adjust an individual's tolerance within its lifetime. So if you move a coral from lower temperature water to higher temperature water, there is some evidence that it acquires a resistance that can then disappear if they're moved back. So this resistance could also be inheritable, which is very exciting.
0: Okay, so we've had genes and geography. What's the third G?
1: That G is germs, uh, the microscopic organisms that live within a coral. This collection of microorganisms is often called the microbiome, and it's a very hot topic in human medicine because the microbes that live within us are found to influence all sorts of aspects of our health. And there's every indication they're just as influential in corals. And I spoke to a researcher called Raquel Peixoto at Kaust University in Saudi Arabia about this idea that the microbiome of a coral could be engineered to provide heat resistance.
3: Most living organisms, including humans, rely on the microbes living within them. So we rely on these microbes for some vitamins we need, some metabolic process and mitigation of toxic compounds, competition with pathogens, all of us. And corals are not different. They also rely on these associated microbes that we call the microbiome that provide these functions and that can input nutrients that can actually help corals to thrive. The problem is that these microbes that are beneficial and actually crucial for the development of these corals and for the biology of these corals, they are also sensitive. They are also sensitive to stress. So when a thermal event happens, these corals are affected, not only the host, but the microbiome. Once these beneficial microbes are affected, pathogens can overgrow. And this causes even more problems. So this is why it is so important to understand which microbes are beneficial. How do they respond to stress? And how can we mitigate these problems?
1: And are those the questions that your research focuses on?
3: Yes. These beneficial microbes are sensitive, We are trying to restore them, just like as a degraded forest. So if a forest is degraded, you plant trees. So we are trying to plant the good microbes back. So what we do is that we isolate these microbes that are naturally abundant, that are already in the reef, natural populations. We grow them in the lab. We select them based on the beneficial traits that they can provide the corals with. And then we just apply them in high amounts. So when corals are going through stress and these microbes will be depleted and replaced by pathogens, we continue to inoculate them in a way that we retain the good ones so the bad ones cannot overtake the coral organism. With that, we hope to block some of the processes that happen that are associated with bleaching or to accelerate the recovery of these corals so that they don't die. They may even bleach, but they don't die.
1: How much can a microbiome adaptation do for a coral?
3: This is a very good question because it's also important to highlight that this is not a magic bullet, right? There is no magic bullet. And it seems that some corals will respond better than others because some corals are easier to manipulate. Their microbiome, their structure is more flexible. So that means we can continue to retain these beneficial microbes and eventually even bring some other that are more adapted, which is what we call rehabilitations. But some corals may not. Accept it. And so, what we are trying to do is that we are trying to understand how flexible some coral species are, how much this manipulation can do for some of these species. Maybe we can find an universal probiotic that can magically work for all of the coral species, which I really don't think it's going to happen. But there are other options we can try to find combinations of probiotics that can work. For most of the species, we can find things that maybe won't prevent bleaching, but will prevent mortality, so we'll minimise the losses. So
1: the research programme you're outlining there makes good sense. We identify corals that survive, we look at the microbes that they have, we try and identify microbes they have in common, we grow them in the lab, we put them back into new corals and hope that they survive. So how much of that journey... Have you been able to go on so far?
3: So first of all, we do that, that you just mentioned, but we also take probiotics from corals that are not necessarily resistant because eventually we find some microbes that are associated with them that seem to be beneficial then if you increase the, the number of cells that you have. We've done that so far in the lab. So we've been developing it on a lab scale. We've managed to isolate microbes from different coral species, identify beneficial microbes from these different species, apply it back in lab trials and protect them. Uh, We've been seeing uh, bleaching mitigation. We've been seeing some probiotics that can prevent coral mortality. And this has been happening for different coral species and different combinations of microbes. Right now, we are taking the next step And we've just started to test this in the real world. So we are at the pilot level, on the pilot scale, trying to see whether these probiotics can actually help natural populations to resist bleaching.
1: And um, the resistance of a coral is probably some cocktail of its genetics and the microbes that, that live within it, maybe the algae as well. One of the things that seems so appealing about the probiotic approach versus breeding coral so that the gene pool gets better, is it seems much faster. And I just wonder, is it possible that it could also increase its resistance to other threats,
3: Yes. I think if you look at the organism and we make the organism healthier, this is virtually important against any threat. And this is why I think the use of probiotics is so powerful because first of all, it's faster. It's a solution that can be used and can be adapted. It can be updated uh, from time to time and that can help with Several different threats—not only the increase of seawater temperature, but also against oil spills, pathogens, and many other things—and some people in Florida have been using probiotics for the protection of corals against disease, for example. And this is why I think this is a very important approach.
1: Raquel, thank you very much for your time.
3: Thank you, thank you. It was a pleasure to be here.
0: so probiotics for corals that's a really interesting possibility people listening might well take probiotics for themselves for better gut health i guess so what's the sort of possibilities of probiotics for corals
1: so it's probably the most exciting possibility because genetics takes generations to take effect in a population geography exposing corals to heat is is difficult to engineer on a reef but germs can be changed within the lifetime of a single coral so it's the only approach of the ones being seriously considered that could theoretically allow for a damaged reef to be restored without anything needing to be taken away. It could be restored in situ.
0: That's amazing. It sounds too good to be true. I mean, what, there must be some challenges to restoring things like this.
1: Absolutely. I, all these approaches have, have their own challenges, but the one they all share, probiotics being no exception, is the challenge of scale. Coral reefs are dying at an enormous rate and the amount of reef area that needs to be restored is vast. So there are all sorts of pressing questions that researchers need to tackle. So can the application of probiotics be done by robot? Can we prioritize specific areas of reef, for example, breeding areas or areas of particular environmental or economic significance, and then focus on restoring those first? These are the kinds of challenging questions that researchers are racing to answer
0: not to mention unintended consequences i guess as well if you're introducing something like this into a population and it spreads and you're not sure of all of the consequences of it that could potentially be also kind of troubling and and worrisome not not to say that it would happen but uh, it's something to be thinking about right
1: no of course and most of the researchers are focusing primarily on just identifying useful things that are already out there and then spreading them further rather than engineering something new in the lab. But nonetheless, unintended consequences can always occur.
0: Yeah, ecosystems are very, very fragile and very carefully balanced, aren't they? So it's always a bit risky to sort of upset them. Um, Okay, Gilad, thank you for all of that. I'm going to ask you to stick around so that we can talk about some of these ideas on promoting coral resilience in the context of the much bigger climate crisis.
1: Sure, looking forward to it.
0: That's all coming up. But first, time for the usual reminder that you can find plenty more deep dives in the pages, or the app, of The Economist. This week, you'll be able to explore the latest science behind those peculiar cases of monkeypox that are emerging around the world. For that and much more, head to economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. I'm Nick Friedman. with Gilad Amit, the Economist Science Correspondent. Today we've been exploring the ways to make corals more resistant to warming sea temperatures. Gilad, all of the options we've talked about sound really intriguing but, you know, as you pointed out earlier, the idea of actually promoting resistant corals has been around for some time and yet today we see that corals are suffering probably more than ever. Is it too late to make a difference?
1: If we don't limit carbon emissions and stop the planet's temperature from rising, yes, it's too late. If the temperature keeps rising to three degrees or beyond, there's no amount of resistance that can save corals from that. But if we can keep temperatures low, then these techniques could work and they're essential to working. Without them, we also have no chance. So it's late, but they can work if we implement them now.
0: There's that old adage, isn't there? Basically, the best time to start this was yesterday, but the second best time is today. (laughs) Totally. So how much uncertainty is there with all this? Outline some of the problems that you foresee in trying to do this now.
1: So corals are animals and our veterinary medicine when it comes to them is really not very advanced. So there's a lot that we need to understand about their biology. We need to develop better standardized tests to measure their resistance so we can compare and work out what is actually more likely to survive. We need to understand the biomarkers that are associated with resistant genes so we can identify them. We need to test if resistance is inherited. And if it is, does it come with other nasty side effects that we want to avoid? And with probiotics, how big of a difference can they make? These are all, Really open questions.
0: Now, some people might be listening to this and thinking, I think I've heard about previous attempts to save corals. You know, there are artificial reefs that people talk about. I think America's Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, so DARPA, the famous innovation agency, they're also investing in these sorts of coral saving measures. How do you feel about those sorts
1: of things? I think the message I'm hearing from all the researchers is we need a toolkit of options. No one solution is going to do it. So, artificial reefs, whether that's, you know, sinking ships in order to get corals to form or letting them form on the basis of wind turbines, which is being explored. These are all really promising options that are needed as part of the, the menu of solutions.
0: All right. So these sound like possible options, all of them. And it's good to have all of the options and different diversity of ideas. Do you think is actually going to happen? I mean, what's going to make it happen?
1: In terms of implementing these scientific solutions, it's going to be a question of funding, and it's going to be a question of speed, really. Can enough resources be devoted to tackling these problems before it's too late? And it's important that we don't see the rise of coral resistance as a license, as an invitation to just keep on doing what we're doing. It's vitally important that we minimize the amount of fossil fuels that we burn, the amount of pollution that we introduce into the water for its own sake, as well as for the, the, the sake of corals.
0: If you can see this idea of restoring coral reefs as a kind of adjacent to geoengineering, I think that you're absolutely right, which is that uh, trying to change ecosystems in this way doesn't give you any sort of license to continue with the pollution that's causing the climate crisis. Okay. Now, Gilad, you've been reporting on the story for several weeks now and uh, following the story for a lot longer than that. What's the most interesting lesson you've learned about this?
1: I've been reading about corals dying since I was a child, and it's really exciting to talk to researchers who, after decades of of pessimism are starting to to see the light at the end of the tunnel. But there is now, through these new scientific advances, some room for hope.
0: Yeah, that is actually very positive. And you know what? It's a tonic to the usual climate stories we have to cover, which can often be quite depressing. I mean, the way things are going now, it's looking less and less likely that the world will be able to limit global warming to one and a half degrees Celsius by the end of the century. So work like this uh, attempt to save coral reefs... It's going to be more and more important to try and get people and ecosystems more resilient to the effects of a warming world. Uh, Gilad, that's been really interesting to hear. So thanks a lot for explaining everything to me.
1: Always a pleasure, Alok. Thank you.
0: Thanks also to Kerry O'Neill and Raquel Peixoto. And of course, thank you for listening to Babbage. While you're with us, a quick reminder that subscribers to The Economist can get our weekly science newsletter called Simply Science by signing up at economist.com slash newsletters and clicking the appropriate button there. Babbage is produced by Jason Hoskin with mixing and sound design this week by Saul Rivers. The executive producers are Harriet Noble and Hannah Mourinho. I'm Alok Jha and in London, this is The Economist.